Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We've been very pleased and, of course, gratified that our podcasts are being received so enthusiastically. We've had requests to enable a way for listeners to have a conversation about episodes. We certainly welcome this idea and want to encourage those of you who do want to do that to do so on our forum so that the whole Uphill Athlete community can join in and benefit from this exchange. To do so, please start a new thread on the forum using the title of the podcast under the most appropriate category. Thanks for being part of this community. All right, welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston. And today I've got a great host, co-host with me. That's one of our coaches, uh, Jack Kunzel. And uh, Jack's got some fun stories for us about some of his exploits in the mountains and uh, recent um, fastest known time on Mount Shasta. And we're going to dive into a little bit of Jack's background. Uh, and I think people will find this pretty interesting. Um, and so I want to just first starting off by introducing Jack. We got to know Jack when he contacted uh, contacted me by email um, almost about a year ago almost and said, hey, like, do you have any jobs at Uphill Athlete? Like, I could clean toilets, I, whatever, you know, I just want to get a job with Uphill Athlete. You guys are so cool. And and after I, my head swelled, stopped swelling, I said, oh, this guy sounds interesting. And so I reached out to Jack. We had our first phone call and I thought, man, this guy fits the bill. He's perfect. Um, and so at that time, Jack had a real job uh, with the U.S. Navy. Jack was a member of uh, the Navy SEALs, went on one of the SEAL teams. And, but he was looking to move up in the world and contacted us. And I said, I think we can probably do something better than toilet cleaning. Um, so let's talk about some of the other things you could possibly do. But, um, and it's been great ever since having Jack on the on the the team. And um, so welcome, Jack. Thanks for taking the time this evening to, to get together with me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for, for uh, bringing me on. And thank you so much for bringing me on to the Uphill Athlete team. It's really been a ton of fun and I've, I've learned so much and I've really, really enjoyed it. So yeah, thanks, Scott. And so when we first thought about bringing Jack on to coach, he has some really impressive mountain running credentials. Um, but I also have to say that you know, we've been kind of wanting to, we needed more uh, coaches with experience in the tactical realm, working with uh, military personnel. And because we had just a few of us that are doing that kind of work and we're getting more and more uh, requests from um, guys who are headed towards selections for the various special operations groups. And so Jack brought that, um, to the table with him as well. But I think 
you know, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, he'll, he's going to touch on his, his illustrious career in the, in the Navy. Um, but uh, we're also, you know, going to talk more about his, the thing he's really passionate about now, which is running in the mountains. Um, and, and I think you went to one of those kind of uh, like second rate schools in the East, didn't you, Jack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big safety school up in the, up in the Northeast in Connecticut. That, that one, was it Yale? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But yep. they, and they had an, an uh, NROTC program there that you got into, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I commissioned out of there. Uh, I went straight from there into, into BUDS, uh, went, went clear and clean through BUDS, and then uh, commissioned uh, as an officer in the SEAL. Well, I guess made it through as an officer in the SEAL teams. And just to kind of caveat that, I mean, my time in the Navy, uh, I was, was never in combat. Um, never did anything dramatic <clears throat> that you'd see in a movie or anything like that. 99% of what I did was basically just working in an office and, uh, some, you know, a fair amount of time training, but I was never directly in combat or, or anything related to that. And then in the end, I mean, uh, basically I just didn't have the, I think in many ways, I didn't have the maturity to kind of to stay in and, and, uh, silently serve as a, as a cog in the machine and, and serve my country, uh, long-term and, I felt like I had a real opportunity to to compete in in mountain sports when I was out in San Diego. I uh, I did some very very basic kind of alpine stuff. I mean, just kind of walk ups like San Jacinto and San Gregonio and the San Bernardinos down there. And I, I really fell in love with kind of um, with with being in the mountains. I I did an ultra and it really wasn't for me, but uh, I just kind of became really attracted to these kind of these mountain efforts. Um, first on foot back then, and then increasingly recently on on skis in the winter. Uh, yeah. I mean, you've racked up a number of pretty impressive, uh, fastest known times for that's that this term is something I honestly had to, uh, learn of this, this notion, what's called an FKT or fastest known time. I didn't know such a thing existed until just a few years ago. Um, I think it's a cruel concept. It's kind of like a competition, but without everybody lining up with a number and a bib and or a number and, and a, at the starting line and going when the gun. So you kind of go do these things um, at your, on your own, whenever you feel like it and you record them on something, some uh, app like Strava where everybody can see how long it took you, how far you went. And then you can kind of, you know, compare um, and so people can see how, who has the actual fastest time on those things. And I think the, <clears throat> When we first started communicating, Jack, you were targeting the presidential traverse in New Hampshire, right? The presidential range. And I yeah, had... back in. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say back in back in 2019, uh, I had researched like what was the five. I was in Virginia Beach at the time, so I researched the five kind of what I felt top mountain running sub day efforts were in the Northeast. And the list I came around way with was the uh, Penny Me Loop, which is like a 50K and like 9,000 feet of gain uh, in New Hampshire. The Presidential Traverse, which is about 18 miles and about 9,000 feet of gain. Uh, the Great Range Traverse, which is about 10,000 feet of gain and about 22 miles in upstate New York. Uh, the Devil's Path and the Catskills, which is like 21 miles and about 8,000 feet of gain. And then the uh, hut traverse, which is about 45 miles, uh, 16,000 feet of gain in New Hampshire. So, yeah, I was I was working on um, trying to set records on on all of those. Uh, then the, the big thing about the Northeast is, which is a little bit unique, is so much of the 
so much of the mountain environment is locked up in wilderness areas. There, there can't be races on a lot of the terrain out there. So people are really uh, forced into these FKTs if they want to race on anything really steep and mountainous. So they've gotten quite, quite popular and quite competitive. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was able to, the, the Pemi loop, I mean, I set an unsupported record on it really does not count. You were at the time you were coaching, uh, Jordan Fields, who, who has a, a very stellar time. It was basically unsupported and I missed that by about seven or eight minutes. Uh, so I missed that one. And then I was able you, to you set the record. Better, you just needed a better coach. I need a better coach. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. That was it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Jordan. Well, the funny thing is with Jordan's is he set out on a training run and he set that, uh, he was just going so quickly about a quarter of the way through, he just decided to keep going and, and he set the record on it. So I showed up and I was, uh, I was thinking this is going to be pretty easy. You know, was, I just need to like treat this like an actual race from the start and I'll beat it. And that was not the case. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, I was, I was successful on the devil's path the Prezi, uh, the Hut Traverse, and the Great Range Traverse. And as we, uh, we, were, we were talking, we were chatting before this, uh, but the, the Great Range Traverse was funny because at the end of the summer, I think I concluded that that was, I would have concluded that was my, was my best effort of the summer, possibly one of the best efforts of my entire life. And uh, I was super proud of that one. The, the record had kind of bounced back and forth between a handful of guys, uh, and each one of them was shaving off about you know, three to 10 minutes uh, and it just slowly over the course of like 10 or 15 hours, 10 or 15 efforts came down from about six hours to about five hours and three minutes. And then I ran it and I ran a 445. And I was like, there's no way anybody's ever going to beat that. <laughs> and uh, I was on a training run in New Hampshire. And all of a sudden I got a ton of Strava notifications on my phone and I had really bad coverage. And I just like went off my route and just like try to get better coverage. And I was just, I was just so shocked and horrified that uh, the guy who basically two back, uh, he had the record like, you know, two people ago, basically. And uh, he had Brian Atkins, who's a uh, Canadian runner, Canadian obstacle course racer up there, super fast, beat, beat my time. So I don't think I'll ever go By back because I, I dumped how, oh, how three much? minutes, I think, no, three minutes. Much, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think I could ever go back and do that again, though. <laughs> I think that's over. So. But all, all good records need to be broken. You know, that's what they do is they get broken. And uh, yeah, yeah. Certainly, if, if if no one ever broke it, then it wouldn't be it. They wouldn't be very exciting, you know. The, all the times would be pretty soft. So, uh, it is nice to have people go and break them. Maybe not, maybe not all of them, but uh, yeah, some of and them. It's one of the things I found really interesting because I, I know, as people know, I'm relatively new, probably the last you know, ten years now to this whole. I mean, I did a lot of mountain running when I was younger, but we didn't have any of this kind of stuff, Strava or fastest known times. But I have been. I'm intrigued by it. And one of the things that I find interesting, like when you contacted me and we began our conversation and you told me you were going to go do this presidential traverse, I said, oh, I just coached this guy who set the fastest known time on that, this guy, Jordan Fields, who I had known as a cross-country ski racer when he was uh, in college and did, did some coaching work with him back then. And he approached me when he was getting ready for the presidential traverse, asking for some, some ideas on, on how he might prepare well for that. But what I was impressed by and interested in was the fact that you went to Jordan and asked for beta on the whole thing. And he was forthcoming, it sounds like. You know, it wasn't like- Yeah, no, absolutely. 
he, he wasn't trying to protect his record. He said, hey, man, go for it. And here's what I did or here. So tell me a little bit. That sounds like a cool culture, though, in this running mountain running world. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll say it now. If anybody ever wants to break anything that I did, I will absolutely dump on them as much as much beta as they possibly want. And I always try, especially with the ski stuff, I always try to screenshot the weather on like a couple of different apps on the day I do it. Um, because that's like uh, for the skiing and like ski FKT, it's like the weather and the conditions, just like absolutely everything. So I just try to record like as much, uh, information about that as possible. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a super good culture. And I mean, I personally, you, my biggest thing is, it's just like courses come and go. Um, they change, they change their distances. They change how they're routed. Uh, and you know, you set the uh, course record on a course one year and then the next year is completely different. It's, it's, you know, basically meaningless. And then beyond that, you look at a lot of major races, their course records are consistently set on days to the best conditions, whether that's, you know, a dry course or that is a, uh, a cool course with a less, you know, less heat or that's a snow free course. And so I feel like FKTs are just a way better source of competition because for a lot of these efforts, you know, it, some of them are even independent of trail and like the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain, those are two locations that are never going to change. Uh, so <laughs> you have the opportunity to like really contribute to something that's a lot more kind of long standing and a lot more interesting. I mean, one of the problems with, I guess, problems, uh, it's, it's something that makes it kind of fun, but I think in the future I could see in 25, 30 years, once these get so competitive, it becomes an issue is, you know, right now the only the fastest times are recorded uh, on the fast known time website. Uh, so if you know you're a second short of that fastest time, it's it's basically a complete it's 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 a complete failure in the in the sense of trying to you know actually get the record out there. So eventually maybe a leaderboard would be a little bit more interesting. But right now it's kind of it's kind of just all or nothing, um, which is yeah. which is exciting also. But uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, but it is. You're right. It would probably lend some maybe make the competition a little more interesting if people saw, Oh, look at that. There's eight people within two minutes of this record. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, I like the kind of that freestyle notion of it. And I think that the FKT idea is appealing for a lot of folks because you get to go there when, as you just said, the conditions are perfect and yeah. you, you choose the day as opposed to yeah. a race where somebody else has chosen the day that you have to race and you know, the, the conditions could be wrong or you're, you might not be in as good a form as you wish you were on that given day. Maybe you got sick 10 days before the start of the race and you had to miss a bunch of training. Um, so I, I think there's some real, there's something really cool about this, this notion. And I also like kind of the freestyle component of it. Like you said, the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain, those things don't change. And, um, there used to be a, I, don't, I doubt if it's going on anymore, but there was a race, a ski race like this in Australia many, many decades ago that I did a few times. That um, was basically raced from one ski area over the top of this mountain range to another ski area. And you could go anywhere you want, any way you wanted. Just the first person to get from the one ski area to the next won the race, any way you wanted to go. In fact, they allowed you to drive a car. And you got a special pin, you got a special award if you beat the car. So that this, when the gun went off and everybody started the ski race, there would be a car that also left from the starting line and drove. And then if you beat the car, you got this award. But it was pretty cool that, you know, they said, okay, 
you can you got to carry this stuff you had to have some emergency things because you were up above tree line a long way but it did everything from like you know crossing a river to you know running up and down through this you know thousands meter through the forest um out of snow lines and we're doing all this in cross-country skating gear you know so like wading them through the river with a sleeping bag on your pack and getting wet and um but it was just very it was very australian first of all but i just thought what a cool concept it's like there's no rules except you just have to be the first one to get to the finish line and you know you could choose your own route and this kind of reminds me a little bit of that this whole fkt thing i think that's really cool yeah and it's 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 something i didn't really realize until this year is what's what's so cool about um kind of schemo and backcountry schemo FKTs is uh, it's one of the few things you can do that's entirely independent from any human intervention ever before. Cause there's, there's no, you know, you could be racing up the mountain 10,000 years ago and it would look exactly the same. Maybe there'd be a, a little bit more snow on the ground, but there's no, you're not relying on, on trails or uh, you know, for most efforts, not relying on trails or bridges or road crossings or anything else. It's just, it's just you just versus the Alpine, just in the most like kind of like virgin, uh sense so that's that's really that's really neat and you can you know obviously take whatever route up i mean certainly being able to pick the conditions is kind of a double-edged sword because there are many times where i thought i'm never doing this sport again uh because finding finding like okay enough conditions in the alpine in most areas is like very easy but finding like perfect conditions it can be a long it can be a long wait um and so it's just like there have been so many times where i'm like oh my god i wish i just had a date where i was racing because <laughs> just from this the shasta recently uh i was planning on racing on saturday and then um between thursday uh between wednesday night and thursday morning the uh t high temperature on saturday dropped uh 20 degrees went from 31 on the summit of shasta went from 31 on 13,000 feet on Shasta to about 11 at 13,000 feet and the winds picked up to like 65 miles an hour. Um, so I had to push it up a day. Uh, but it's just, yeah, it's just kind of infuriating sometimes, but it's also, you know, you're getting the, yeah. And you, so let's talk a little bit about Shasta. So first of all, you sent me a really cool video. I think you probably put it on your Instagram of your failed attempt to break the FKT a few weeks ago um, when you went on your um, Schemo skis, which delaminated on the descent. Um, and that was kind of quite entertaining. Anybody, was that on your social media of anybody who wants to see that, that hilarious video? Um, well, so the video was just, was just descending. Like I did so many practice laps. It was just, it was just a random uh, practice lap. And then what happened on the day of the effort was i mean so for shasta the traditional record is just an ascent record in track spikes but to me like that's not a very aesthetic or logical record i mean this is like such a popular mountain for ski mountaineering um you run up there in track spikes and they're great for going uphill but they're horrible for descending so you run, run up there so quickly and then you just waddle all the way down the mountain for like, you know, it took me like four hours to get down with track spikes on. Uh, whereas skis, you know, it's the, the best way to get down the mountain and it's like pretty close to almost as fast as running. So I think it really makes a lot more sense for a ski round trip record. Uh, Ryan Gelfi had done some, Ryan Gelfi probably has the ski record on the mountain. He had done some faster ski attempts, uh, but nobody had ever really put down a, a proper like race effort on it. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so I, I spent a while waiting for some decent weather. We had we had talked uh, we had talked back in December about my training. I'm, I'm primarily focusing on hundred mile uh, running races this summer, so I was kind of training for that. And I was like, I'm just going to do these kind of these ski efforts just along the way and just just see kind of how they go down. Uh, I was sleeping. One thing is for these Pacific Northwest mountain records is like probably very few people are ever well acclimatized for it. Uh, the highest places you can park, the highest place I think you can park overnight in Oregon is probably Timberline Resort at Mount Hood, which is, you know, 6,000 feet. There's probably a couple places that are higher, but there's really not much. And then Washington, you know, there, there's, I think, few roads that are plowed over much over 4,000 feet. So to get acclimatized, you really got to come from out of state. So I had been parking a lot and in Tahoe at 7,400 feet. Uh, and then I started parking down at Mammoth at about 85 and uh, yeah, I went up there and I tried racing on skis. I got up in uh, two hours and five minutes from Bunny Flats for like 7,300 feet of climbing. And uh, it was just, it was going great. And then I, I transitioned. I'd been bootpacking at that point to the summit and I transitioned uh, to skiing and just coming down Misery Hill, there was just so much rhyme on the, on the face of it. And they just, both of my skis just absolutely detonated. Um, I'd skied it a number of times before on heavier skis, uh, actually once on skis that light, but I just must've taken it much slower. Yeah. And I snapped both of them and I like cut my thumb open and originally like I looked down and I was like, you know what, maybe I can make this work. <laughs> <laughs> but the skis were just, one of them was completely snapped in half and the other one delaminated tip to tail. So, uh, yeah, I had to end up having to down climb. It was a little bit horrifying cause I'd gone up there the wind chill that day was, was right below zero. And I was just wearing, uh, just compression shorts and the Patagonia Houdini windbreaker. And I, I had no shirt on, I had no gloves. Uh, I had a helmet on, but I was, I became very concerned. I wasn't going to be able to manipulate my crampons and down climb. Uh, but fortunately it ended up being fine. So I kind of, that was Shasta's season's been so bad. They're sitting at 27% of snowpack right now. So that was kind of the end of, uh, of uh, skiing opportunities clean from the summit to the parking lot. Well, that, so, that, uh, yeah. that trying to, wanting to ski, thinking you could actually make it work to ski down with both of your skis broken, that's that kind of can-do attitude that I would suspect <laughs> take you a long way on the SEAL teams. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. This, is not a, this is not a problem that my skis are broken. I <laughs> Yeah, maybe I should have just jumped off the Red Banks headwall and just like glissaded, you know, down the glissated, 40 yeah, degrees well, slope yeah, for 2008. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> so then you you went back just the other day. Um, yeah. And you used, sounds like the, the more traditional approach that's been used to set this speed record on that mountain. Um, you used track spikes, right? Yeah, yeah. So I used track spikes. So uh, it was just, yeah. I had some cross country spikes with six spikes in the bottom of them. And I did the, did three quarter inch spikes in the first two rows and then one inch spikes in the last row and, uh, just went up on a really solid melt freeze crust, uh, started, you know, right, right after sunrise basically. And just, you know, just ran up on the really firm conditions. The, there had been a really, a little bit of snow earlier this week, a little bit more than was forecasted, which actually filled in the boot pack. But fortunately things were just so wind blasted and just so melt freeze hard that I was able to just kind of run on top of, on top of everything up there. Um, so let's, so yeah, so the, when we, let's, when you say run, um, yeah, that's pretty 
that's something I think for even for me is a little hard to to <laughs> digest. So you you if I correct me if I'm wrong, but you went. This was about almost seven thousand feet. How many for how much vertical was it? It was. Uh, I think it was just over sixty two. Sixty two. Sixty two. Yeah. So sixty two hundred feet, and you took you an hour and twenty what twenty. 28 hour and 28 minutes and so yeah you probably were running for most of that um to, yeah to do, i mean it was yeah. an hour an hour and 28 minutes to go like 3.5 miles <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah but, like two and a half miles an hour <laughs> yeah exactly so it's a slow run but it's still a run um yeah and you what did you have in your hands so i um I was pretty proud of my the system I came up with. So I had a, a flip belt, which is like a running belt, which has, uh, it's basically just a tube with a couple of like slit holes in it where you can slide items into the tube that you wear around your waist. So you slide in like gels and your phone and everything else. But mm. I just, I took a Petzl gully ice axe and I just like sleeved it between two holes in the tube. So it was just like on my hip and actually held there pretty well. Uh, and uh, I put in a uh, flask with 500 milliliters of Morton in it that I, I didn't even drink on the way up. So that was a kind of a waste. Uh, and then I had my, uh, just a little inReach mini in there. And then I had uh, two Schemo race poles, fixed length carbon race poles. So. And so you yeah. used the poles for the, on going up, but then coming down, yeah. you have the, the ax. Cause it's, I think you told me you had to, because the the spikes are only in the front of the shoe, you couldn't descend facing out. You had to basically face inward and down climb, right? Yeah, yeah. So on the way up, uh, basically the way it went down is the first from so horse camp where the record starts is at about seventy nine hundred feet. Uh, so the first probably all the way from seventy nine to ten five to Helen Lake is is you know class one. It's probably about twenty five percent uh grade maybe a little bit more uh and it's it's pretty easy there's like one steep section but you know no drama fortunately that section didn't really get much snow and people had glissaded down and then i just ran up the the frozen glissade track it was like super fast and then once i got to helen lake you know things i think you get probably as steep as 40 degrees i uh took the i took my axe and i volley strapped it to the top of the schema poles um, so I thought about doing a whippet, but my thought with the whippet, so a whippet is like, you know, you're familiar with a whippet. Well, yeah. Even so, me, as old as I am, know what a whippet is. Yes. But for, well, for those am, of the audience who do not know what a whippet is, who are not as well informed as I am, why don't you explain what a whippet is? So a whippet is a product that Black Diamond makes, which is a crossover in my opinion, I used to think it was the best of both worlds between an axe and a ski pole. And now I think it's the worst of both worst worlds of, between I would, an axe and a ski I pole. I would agree 100%. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an axe. It, so it's, a it's basically a ski ice pole. Axe, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's a ski yeah. pole with an axe head on top of it. But the axe head isn't very big. And the ski pole is like shockingly heavy. So the ski pole, so there's a, believe it or not, there's a carbon whippet. And there's a non-carbonate whippet and the dip it mm. difference between the two is like eight or nine grams. It's like nothing, but the price difference mm. is like 60 bucks and, um, or it's like 40 bucks. And, uh, the, what I found is my schemo race poles and a Petzl gully 
we're almost exactly the same weight as the whippet but with the axe you get a much larger axe head and you have the ability to self-arrest much better and you can also you know plunge it in soft snow if you really needed to um and so what i what my kind of thinking was it would be better to carry the weight of the axe on my body um until i needed it versus always having it in my hand where it's probably much less efficient um the other thing is is with a schema race pole with the axe volet strapped to the top of it all the weight is concentrated right in your hand whereas the whippet that 450 grams is you know largely spread around along that that very heavy kind of adjustable shaft and so i'm sure it's much less efficient as you're flicking it uphill um than just having jack, all the mass essentially in your hand jack, that education that yale i mean it, it, <laughs> this is this is yale coming through that was fully <laughs> worth your parents spending all that money to send you to yale just be so oh yeah it was know. actually the u.s government that paid for that one but <laughs> okay <laughs> so now there was great that was great use of our taxpayer dollars to send you to yale so now you yeah. can tell the difference between how which is whether it's more efficient to have a whippet or a Petzl Gully ice axe. I mean, that was definitely money well spent. Thank you. <laughs> it was. I think I'd like to think so. Maybe. Yeah, I just like to thank everybody for paying for paying for my <laughs> education and uh, yeah, sponsoring that. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, so yeah, I, I used the axe a little bit on the way up and then the way down. It was it was all the the funny thing was on the way up. Uh, occasionally, I would look. So before I started this, I had tried this actually on Mount Washington and I had broken one of the track spikes on the bottom of the shoe and I had super glued it back onto the bottom of the shoe. Oh, and that, that one came out in the first, you know, 50 yards. Um, yeah, so that, and so like that didn't, that's, so that's part of the educational thing that didn't stick. Like yeah. super glue is not meant to hold track spikes onto the shoe. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. I had to, I had to learn that one the hard way, but then, as I was going up, I just kept looking at the bottom of the shoes, and every time I looked, there were more, there were less spikes down there than, uh, <laughs> than what I looked previously. But fortunately, I, I only lost four, but I lost the four longest spikes. Uh, so on the way down, above the red banks, it was it was uh, like a lot of clear ice, and it was just like kind of sketchy. And so I was just just taking it really slow. I mean, there were actually some skiers up there, and I I, I was like. I almost asked for their axe and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to see how this goes, but I might come back and like ask for you guys' axe, your guys' crampons or something. Um, but it ended up just very slow and I had to walk backwards all the way from the top of Misery Hill at 13.7 all the way down to Helen Lake at like 10.5. Um, just like slowly just going with the axe, just, you know, daggering it into the slope and working down with the track spikes. Um, well, the fall yeah. there would be really, really bad. So I'm glad you yeah. did the smart thing and faced in and down climbed there. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, this whole track spike thing is interesting because, um, and I think this is something not well known, <clears throat> but a couple of friends of mine on Everest in 1990, I think, probably or 90 or 91, I can't remember which, a guy named Anatoly Bukharev, who some people may have know the name of, um, and my, one of my climbing partners, uh, Kevin Cooney, <clears throat> they were doing a, trying to set a speed record on Everest, and they used Adidas um, Javelin throwing chat, um, spikes, shoes, with super gators, 
And if anybody oh remembers God. super gators, so super gators are a, a gator that's insulated. This is before the day of modern lightweight double boots that actually have a super gator built into them. In the old days, people, you would buy a separate super gator that you had to attach to your mountaineering boot. Um, and they, they took a pair of super gators and attached them to their javelin, these Adidas javelin shoes, which had spikes on them. And then they, they duct taped the super gators to their javelin shoes. And they, they ran all the way to, through camp two. And I think somewhere around camp three, they changed to um, crampons from the, wow. um, from the, but they were moving obviously really fast. Um, so it was That's kind incredible. of, so this is not a, you know, totally new concept. I mean, now it's, uh, I think it's more done more often, but now cramp, of course, crampons and things like mountaineering boots are so much lighter than they used to be back then. Um, but I always thought that was kind of a cool thing that these guys were, you know, trying that out back then figuring like, what's the lightest thing we can put on our feet that still will work and, and you know, get us quite a thick, big, got quite far up the mountain using this pretty unorthodox uh, technique. That's wild. Yeah. And I was, I was honestly, I was very impressed uh, how well they did going up. It's, it is, they are, they were very fast. Like I, I don't think I ever slipped on the way up. They, they, they were holding pretty good. Um, yeah. yeah. So they worked really well. I, I love running in cross country spikes. <laughs> they're great shoes. I mean, they're not better than, and these are different things people understand. These are different than like a track spike. Because a track spike has a plastic sole, which is slipperier mm -hmm. than hell. And a cross-country spike has a rubber sole, which so the sole isn't nearly as slippery as the plastic uh, sole. Still not very good if you don't have the... So were your spikes actually breaking off or were the, was the, the nut part pulling out of the shoe? So the nut part was pulling out of the shoe. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would yeah. suspect to happen. Yeah. Huh. You know, another thing that might work well in that would be something more like a baseball cleat because they're heavy, they're heavier duty. Yeah. Cleats. Yeah. 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 Um, and they got a cleat in the heel so you could potentially descend. Maybe. Oh, wow. Something here, Jack. You know, you could, yeah. you could face out. Um, yeah. So. I was almost thinking, yeah, something, something bladed would work a little bit better, you know, maybe like a Chevron of steel, but a baseball cleat is bladed a little bit, you know? Um, yeah. I think it would hold a little bit better in the snow. Yeah. That is a good idea. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, next? I, I just, so, Sorry. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to pre-spray too hard, but I think I'm going to try, I'm waiting for a window on a hood uh, to try the ski record there, which currently, Jason Durai has uh, Salt Lake City dude, and it's very quick. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 kind of next. I mean, I think it is it is interesting. There are there are ski records right now that are pretty fast on on Hood, uh, on Rainier, uh, on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. But there's there's some in Utah that I'm hearing about, but they aren't they aren't very well publicized. I think uh, as kind of schema gets more popular. You know, people kind of go to the the European the European model of of uh, these traditional style races, but I think in the U.S. there's just so much opportunity for some round trip records on on some of these some of these more famous peaks, uh, which is which are really fantastic. I mean, Hood Hood has a little bit of um, you know, depending on the conditions, I think it's very very non technical, very easy climbing, uh, but uh, 
and then Shasta, you know, is, 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 is quite easy also. So I think there's some real opportunity there for, for guys to come off the schema circuit and kind of do some of these really fast peaks in the snow, yeah. uh, which would be cool to see in the future because it's not having a ton right now. No. So, Well, I know yeah. that um, our, one of our former coaches, Sam, um, is still smarting a little bit from the FKT you took away from him, or the local FKT that you took away from him. Uh, but um, Sam's gone on to, to bigger and better things. He's coaching the local junior ski team here and uh, and loving it. And he's doing some schemo racing. In fact, I talked to him today. He did, uh, I think, a, a schemo race at Crystal just the other day. Um, okay. Had a pretty good result there, so that was fun for him. But I coached Sam for for a number of years in his cross country ski racing days. But I, and he was quite proud of that FKT that you took away from him. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't get much bigger and better than Goat, Goat Peak, you know? Goat so, Peak. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know where you go from there. Yeah, People come from all over the world to uh, try to set that, break that FKT on Goat Peak now. Um, yeah. 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 It's a good one. It's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, <clears throat> well, Jack, this has been really fun. Thanks a lot for sharing these experiences with us. Um, and thanks for letting me, you know, being the brunt of some of my uh, jokes and, and uh, <laughs> ridicule. Uh, but I, I know you can take it. You're, you're a tough guy. You're a Navy SEAL. Hell, you can take anything. Um, right. So, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I uh, really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And um, People that are interested in, in connecting with Jack, uh, you can do so through our website. He's, he coaches for us, uh, or you can reach him at um, jack at uphillathlete.com. And Jack, I'm sure you have some presence on social media. What, what, where can people find you there? Uh, Instagram and, and Strava, just, you know, just my name, basically. Yeah. Jack Kunzel. And can you spell, spell your last name? Because it's not easy for people. Uh, K-U-E-N-Z-L-E. Yeah, it's a little, okay. little different. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Jack, thanks. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. I hope that was somewhat entertaining and informative. And we'll be back um, soon with more. All right. Goodbye. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.